0: good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 10. I don't know about if you heard about this this summer, but the Sioux Falls City Council recently gave the Sioux Falls Police Department $50,000 to spend on a campaign to remind you to lock your car. Anybody hear about that? That's because the number of stolen vehicles in Sioux Falls is skyrocketing. Maybe you've been hearing about that trend. Last year, in 2022, police investigated 1,361 reports of stolen vehicles in Sioux Falls. That averages out to three stolen cars per day right here. That's up, if that seems like a high number to you, it is. That's up 80% since 2019, At the end of June this summer, there was a week there, end of June into July, where 26 vehicles were stolen in one week. Most of those were unlocked. And so the police department is spending $50,000 to ask you, please lock your vehicles. When I moved to Sioux Falls from New Jersey, we lived right across the river from New York City, prior to that had lived in inner city Chicago, I could not believe that people here left their cars running in the parking lot while they went into the grocery store and expected their car to be there when they came back out. Could not believe that people just rode their bikes and then parked them with no bike lock. Or people who told us they never bothered locking their front door. We had multiple locks at different levels of our front door in Chicago so that if somebody broke the window at the top, they couldn't reach the lock at the bottom of the door. That's what I was used to. Today, Sioux Falls is a different place, though. And Sadly, it's not just stolen vehicles. Violent crime in Sioux Falls has increased nearly 50% over the last 10 years. And that's just local crime. I'm sure you don't need me to catalog for you examples of national crime and corruption. My guess is those trends concern you. They concern me. Do you ever feel powerless when you hear these kinds of numbers, these reports, these trends of rising crime and rampant corruption? As a Christian, you have recourse. You have access to the greatest possible source of help, and Psalm 10 teaches us how to pray when we're surrounded by evil. So I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me as we read God's word. We stand out of reverence for God and his holy and authoritative word. This is Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. Out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise. O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father, you are our recourse. You are our refuge. You are the one to whom we direct our grief and lament, our agony and affliction, our cries for justice. And we thank you that in your word, you have given us language. You have given us patterns and templates to follow for praying through life in a crime-ridden world. And so we pray that you would instruct us through this word this morning for your glory and for our good and for the good of this city that we love in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 1 begins with a question, and it's that familiar question we always ask when we encounter evil. Why? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? One of the most disturbing discrepancies of life in this fallen world is the apparent pain-free prosperity of the wicked. We believe that on the one hand God is righteous and just and good and sovereign over history and yet we look around us and those who are involved in crime and corruption often look like they are Getting along just fine. Getting away with it. So David asks out loud what God's people wonder whenever violence increases. Why doesn't God act more swiftly? Why does God seem to be standing far off with his hands in his pockets, looking the other direction? Why doesn't God do something? When the wicked prosper with no fear of punishment, When they conquer without consequence, it looks like God is absent, and that is a serious threat to the faith of God's people, as David expresses here. And Psalm 10 is a gift to God's people for such times, because it assures us that even though the violent prosper, God will call them to account. Even though it looks like the violent prosper, God will call them to account. And to persevere in faith in this crime-ridden world, you have to be convinced of that. You have to be convinced of that by faith because God says it in his word. And so Psalm 10 shows you how to fight the fight of faith. How to trust that and persevere in faith when it doesn't look like it's true. So how can you keep your faith when crime and corruption increase? Psalm 10 models for us three responses. First, tell God about evil. Second, ask God for justice. And third, trust God to act. Tell God about evil, ask God for justice, and trust God to act. First, tell God about evil. David begins by pleading his case against the wicked before God, and he goes into great detail to tell God about the evil that he is seeing and hearing about. He speaks of the wicked five different times throughout this psalm, verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 13 and 15. He calls them evildoers in verse 15. He also grieves for their victims. He speaks repeatedly of the poor and afflicted. Two words that translate the same Hebrew word in verses 2 and 9 and 12. He speaks of the innocent, the helpless, the fatherless, the oppressed. In our society, we tend to view criminals as sick people, mainly in need of rehabilitation. But scripture views human beings as responsible moral agents. And each person deserves either protection under the law or just punishment. And David, as he describes the wicked, he gives this three-dimensional profile of the wicked, describing their motives and their crimes and the apparent outcomes of their ways. More than anything else, the most prominent attribute of the wicked is his pride. You catch that in the first few verses. Verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And in the Hebrew, it doesn't actually say does not seek him. It just says does not seek or does not inquire, period. It's not simply that the wicked don't seek God, although that's certainly true. He doesn't inquire of anyone at all. He's not concerned about right or wrong good or bad, legal or illegal. He is a law unto himself. He asks permission of no one. Whatever he desires, whatever he craves, he does. Whenever and however he pleases. Verse 5 says, he puffs at his foes. That is, he sneers at them, he scoffs at anyone who stands in his way. Arrogant, boastful, greedy, and proud. Such are The wicked. And if pride is the driving motive of the wicked, violent crime is the visible fruit here that David is concerned about in verses 7 through 11. Beginning with the way they use their tongue as a weapon. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. His mouth is filled with oppression. Yes, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Violent oppressors are always skilled talkers. They know how to use words to cheat, to manipulate, to exploit, to groom their victims. In verse 8, David laments how the wicked ambush and murder the innocent in secret. That is, they know how to get away with murder. Verse 8, his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. That that word stealthily watch is describing something you're doing with your eyes. If you want to know what it's like, pretend you're throwing a dart and you're aiming the dart. What, What do your eyes do? You close one, do you half shut the other one to see a little more clearly? That's what he does with his eyes. He is taking aim at the helpless. He sets his sights on them. He lurks and stalks. David compares it to a lion stalking his prey and seizing his victims. Th- these people overpower victims by sheer force. Verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. These are scary people because they have power to do what they want. And David is here lamenting to God Violent crimes, forcible felonies we would call them, crimes of murder and robbery and assault, and the worst part of it all is that it works. Wouldn't you agree the worst kind of crime is unsolved crime? I mean, crime is grievous, it's heinous, it's appalling, but if you hear of crime that has not yet been solved and you know that the perpetrator is still on the loose, that is especially horrifying. When the wicked get away with it, innocent people live in fear, and the wicked are emboldened in their actions. And this is what David laments in verses five and six his ways prosper at all times. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. They say crime doesn't pay, but Human trafficking is a $150 billion global industry. Global drug trafficking is worth $650 billion. $150 billion in the U.S. alone. Identity theft, $50 billion. Retail theft, $100 billion. Porch pirates, $20 billion a year in America. Crime is incredibly lucrative. And the wicked prosper. So the wicked are arrogant. They're violent. They're prosperous. But for those who treasure the glory of God, the greatest lament is that the wicked are godless. Verse 4, all his thoughts, the same word translated in another place in this psalm as schemes. All his schemes are there is no God. That is his Operating conviction. There is no God. Verse 5, David laments to God, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. Completely out of his mind. Any possibility of God's rules or God's consequences. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 13, David cries, why? Why? Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? You notice the self-deception going on here? In verse 4, the wicked says, there is no God. And then in verse 11, he says, God has forgotten. So which is it? Does he not think there is a God or does he think there is a God? In order to commit such atrocities, the wicked must sear their own consciences by lying to themselves again and again and again, comforting themselves that there is no God, there is no cosmic justice, there is no final judgment. So, what are we to do? I mean, crime like this is—I think on one level it just exists in our minds, like out there. You read about it in the news, but these these are realities in this world in which. We live, and it's possible that some of you have been victims of crimes or loved ones of yours have been. David models for us what we are to do. Tell God about evil. Beloved, God is glorified when you grieve over wickedness and godlessness that you see in the world. Lamenting evil is an expression of delight in and longing for God's righteousness. So it is absolutely right for your heart to break when you hear news of crime and corruption. The danger that we all face is that our hearts grow callous, don't they? Conditioned to this news. Probably, if you're like me, oftentimes the first thought that goes through your mind is, again? Do you lament the crime and corruption in our city and in our society? I mean, I know you disagree with it. I don't have to convince you that it's wrong, but does it grieve you? And I know we are finite beings. None of us has the mental capacity or the emotional bandwidth to pay attention to every atrocity and feel the appropriate level of grief over all of the things that are wrong in the world, which is why I think something like Psalm 10 is helpful for us because it just kind of looks out at the state of things and pours out this lament to God. When crime increases, God's people grieve. Because concern about public safety is not primarily a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's a religious and spiritual issue. Rising crime has all sorts of causes. You can listen coming up soon when the mayor and the chief of police and others give a report on crime in Sioux Falls over this last year. All kinds of causes contributing to rising crime. May our apathy and prayerlessness not be one of those causes. Lament the evil that you see. Second, ask God for justice. David's aim here in this psalm is not merely to tell God about the problem. He's concerned with asking God, pleading with God to do something about the problem. The wicked thinks God is forgotten and won't do anything, verse 11, but David prays in verse 12, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. It's important for us to remember as we preach through the Psalms this summer, and this is our rhythm every summer. The psalms are for singing and praying. The primary purpose of the psalms is to be read, or excuse me, to be prayed and sung, not to be read or studied or even preached. It's right to preach it because it's God's word, but that's not the ultimate end of the psalms. They are for God's people to sing and pray. So how does Psalm 10 teach us to pray in times of trouble? Look at two requests David makes, verse 2 and verse 15. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. These are called prayers of imprecation. Imprecation means a spoken curse imprecation. Not a curse like profanity. Not four-letter words. Not obscene talk. And not a curse like a witch's hex that she might try to cast on somebody, a spell put on somebody. But a covenantal curse. Along with God's law, God gave sanctions. That is, God threatened Real penalties for disobedience. God promises to his people blessings for obedience and he warns of consequences. Curses for disobedience. So we call these imprecatory psalms. Literally that means cursing psalms. And imprecatory psalms appeal to God to act according to his righteous character and his covenant promises. Now, as you can imagine, when you call something cursing psalms, Christians have for a long time struggled and wrestled with this. What are we to do with cursing psalms? Are, is it okay for us to pray imprecatory psalms today, especially in light of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, or Paul writes in Romans twelve fourteen, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Is it ever right for us to pray imprecatory psalms? I think whenever we run into an apparent contradiction in God's word, a helpful question to ask is when or in what sense? That's because the law of non-contradiction says A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. So if we ask, is this talking about something maybe in different times, maybe in one time it is okay and another time it's not, or in one sense it is okay and another sense it's not, Then, then it's not actually a contradiction within God's word. That's a helpful way to deal with these questions. And I think that's what we see in Scripture, that there is a time and a way to pray these prayers and there is a wrong way to do it. Imprecatory psalms are like lethal force. Lethal force may only be used to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm. Extremely rare circumstances. Lamentable circumstances. The kind of situations that even law enforcement officers don't want to find themselves in. Extreme response for extreme circumstances. Likewise, there is a right and a wrong way to pray imprecatory psalms. The wrong way is to pray them with personal animosity or bitterness or resentment or vengeance. Imprecatory Psalms are not prayers for personal revenge. It's not just, I have a grudge, and so I am calling down lightning from heaven against people who crossed me. It's not what's going on here. That would be evil and wicked, just like somebody who conceals a gun and goes out looking for trouble, hoping to find a situation where they can use their gun. Scripture means it when it commands us to forgive. You must really forgive those who wrong you as God has forgiven you. You really must bless those who persecute you. But like deadly force, there is a time, an occasion for its use. The the right way to pray imprecatory psalms is in those kinds of cases of extreme injustice, violence, and evil. To hand that justice over to God. Under normal circumstances, our prayer is certainly that God would save the wicked, bring them to repentance, open their eyes. But there are times when it's appropriate to prayer imprecations like this one in Psalm 58, 6, and 7. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Because remember, the wicked is not the only character in Psalm 10. There is also another character, the Afflicted, the victim who is being oppressed, being abused. So asking God to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer or to break the teeth in their mouths is a just and godly way for people to pray for the deliverance of the innocent and afflicted. You see, in cases like that, when violent crime is happening, you don't really have an option. You will either be soft toward the wicked and hard on the afflicted or soft toward the afflicted and hard on the wicked. You get that? Inescapable situation. Either soft toward the wicked and hard on the afflicted or soft toward the afflicted and hard on the wicked. We, we live in a society where people are primarily concerned with going easy on criminals. And the result is a justice system that is cruel toward victims. But David prays in verse 12, arise, O Lord. He asks God to judge the wicked. There are two sides of the same coin here. To ask God to remember the afflicted is to ask God to intervene and thwart the wicked. Asking God to do justice to the oppressed in verse 18 means asking God to do whatever is necessary to stop the wicked from doing injustice. Break their arm. Take their fangs out. Blunt their arrows thwart their plans and let them fall into their own schemes. That's what we pray when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We tend to think of how glorious and good that is for the righteous. That means judgment for the wicked. When we pray like Revelation twenty two twenty, come Lord Jesus, we're praying for all of that, both sides of that coin. In Romans 12, right before Paul said, bless those who persecute you, he wrote, In verse 9, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the appropriate use then of imprecatory psalms, to refuse to take personal revenge and rather to do what Paul commands here, leave it to the wrath of God. In prayer, handing it over to God's justice. This is the example that Jesus sets for us. And Peter points suffering Christians to this example in 1 Peter 2, 23. He writes, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. And precatory psalms are not reviling those who do wrong to you. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The imprecatory psalms give you language to entrust yourself to God who judges justly. Jesus didn't take it into his own hands. He entrusted himself to the judge of the living and the dead. That means Jesus trusted by faith that God, the righteous judge of heaven and earth, would judge the wicked and deal with them. David says in verse 14, to you the helpless commits himself. Do you know the first thing that police officers do after using lethal force? they immediately provide medical assistance to the suspect. Somebody who was actively trying to kill them or someone else. They stop the threat and then they do everything they can to save that life. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Which tells you that was not an act of personal anger. They were acting under control to protect people. And they wish no ill will on that suspect. That's how the imprecatory psalms work. David prayed strong imprecations against, we have a couple instances in the psalms, imprecations against Saul when King Saul was chasing David, another case when David's own son Absalom was pursuing him, and yet in both of those cases, when those men, Saul and Absalom, were killed, David responded immediately with grief and compassion and sorrow. That's the test, what's going on in your heart. Listen to Psalm 3.7. This is when David's fleeing his son Absalom. He prayed, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. He's asking God to use his left hook. Use it. And then when David receives word of Absalom's death, 2 Samuel 18.33 describes his response. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate, and wept. He had just prayed, strike his cheek and break his teeth. And then he weeps. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. That's the evidence. David harbored no sinful bitterness but entrusted himself to God. And in that way, the imprecatory psalms give us license and language to do the same. Finally, trust God to act. After beginning with the question, then pouring out his lament about evil, and then asking God for justice, David ends with resounding declarations of faith. He counters the godless unbelief of the wicked. He steadies his own doubting soul with truth. Verse 16, the Lord is king. Forever and ever, the nations perish from his land. This is the refuge that the afflicted need. This is the bedrock for our belief. This is not a hope of what might be. David is not asking God to make this so. This is the present and permanent reality. God is king forever and ever. The righteous king is on his heavenly throne regardless of how bad things look. So in answer to that doubt, back in verse 1, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? David professes now his faith that God does indeed see and hear. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see? He preaches truth to himself and to God in prayer. You do see, for you note mischief and vexation. Verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear the only thing more horrifying than suffering some affliction would be suffering all alone with nobody to hear you when you cry for help. That's what David is afraid of Till he reminds himself the truth. God sees. God hears. God is attentive to the afflicted, and that is a comfort and strength to our souls. Not only does God see and hear, but David is also confident by faith that God will act. Verse 14, for you note mischief and vexation. as a purpose. God is keeping record so that you may take it into your own hands. And he says the same thing at the very end. You will incline your ear for a purpose to an end in order to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So contrary to the doubts of the righteous, And the hopes of the wicked, God does assert himself in history. And when God acts, he cuts off evildoers, verse 18, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David just turns up the contrast here between the Lord who is king forever and ever and man who is of the earth, or as the NIV translates it, mere earthly mortals. Here's a reminder that God has built in limitations to every evil doer. Sooner or later, everyone will die. From the most powerful politicians skimming off millions of dollars of foreign aid into their own pockets to drug lords ruling billion-dollar cartels, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So you can rest assured there will be no cold cases. But God is not just waiting till the end of history either. He also acts through the civil government. Paul says in Romans 13, three through four, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Speaking about the civil magistrate. In a society where people and their Officials fear God. The bad guys are supposed to be terrified. They have every reason to be scared. That's why they have to keep lying to themselves that God doesn't see. In a fallen world, terror is inescapable. It's not whether but which. Either the innocent are going to live in terror or the wicked will live in terror. When we pray the imprecations of Psalm 10, we are asking God to do justice. Trusting that he will break the arm of the wicked through God-appointed Means. I was trying to recall if I had ever heard a sermon on an imprecatory psalm. I don't know that I have. But I'm thankful to God for his word, which informs the way that we pray. In in June of 2021, my family was leaving a birthday party at Thunder Road, and we pulled up to a red light at 12th and Kiwanis. We're facing south on Kiwanis. And from the west. I just remember a blur of a shape sped through the intersection. Speeds well over 100 miles an hour. I think it was closer to 120. It it was moving so fast it it literally took my breath away. I just gasped and looked at Barbara and said, what was that? Moments later, an unmarked police vehicle flew through the intersection with lights on. Barbara said, that's a high-speed chase happening. In God's kindness, our light was red. If it hadn't been, we would have been in that intersection at that very moment, and that vehicle was not going to stop. Suspects in that SUV were wanted for a shooting, and they were able to ditch the vehicle on the east side of town and duck into an apartment complex and get away from police that night. I remember praying that night, Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked, call them to account, let them be found, don't let them get away. I knew that police officers in our city were putting their lives in danger to track down violent criminals who were, they had no regard for human life at all. Psalm 10 gave me language. I learned later that God answered that prayer in a remarkably specific way. One of the guys who got away that night was later involved in a few more shootings. But a few months later, right after committing another shooting, while he was fleeing from police officers, He shot himself in the hand. I don't rejoice at that, but I do marvel at God's justice. He was finally arrested a week later. We pray, God, let them be caught and called to account for their actions. God does see and he does act and you can trust him. And whether or not you see justice here and now, you can set your hope in Jesus. He came the first time to suffer for your sins, to make atonement so that you can be spared the righteous wrath of God, but when he comes again, he is not coming back to suffer, but to end all suffering. Looking to Jesus is the way to keep your faith when crime and corruption rise. Paul comforts suffering Christians by describing the return of Christ with imprecatory language. This is the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. Paul writes, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are glorious and righteous and good. We thank you that we have this revelation in your word of what that day will be like so that by faith we can see it. We see it with eyes of faith and we long for that day. You will appear in the glory of your might and you are coming to be glorified By your saints to be marveled at among all who believe. And so we marvel at you today. And we pray that your righteous ways would prevail. God, we pray today for our mayor, for the chief of police, for law enforcement officers in our city, for lawyers and judges and everyone involved in the justice system. And we pray, oh God, for righteousness to prevail. And for those today who are scheming in their hearts how to do evil, prospering with no fear of God before them, we pray that you would call them to account until you find none. That you might be feared and praised, that your people would dwell in safety to worship you, and love you, and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.